understanding of what Christmas is all about as we go through the day and in the next hour as we take some time to deal with the topic, the Tower of the Flock, and how important that is to Christmas time, and yet how little known it seems to be in our society today. And I pray that you would help us uh, as we deal with that subject and uh, that we can clearly see it and show it from Scripture. And then as we come to the Psalms this morning and deal with Psalm 13, I pray that you would uh, guide and direct our steps and help us to understand clearly. And then, Father, that it will strengthen us, uh, help us to become more of what we want to be and what we ought to be according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 13, if you will. Psalm 13. It's only six verses long, and so we're going to take uh, a time to read the entire psalm. It won't take us that long. And um, there's not a specific instance in David's life or any of the other uh, fellows that could have written some of the psalms um, that we can really attach this psalm to. Um, But uh, some people have called it the how long psalm, and that's an interesting name for it. But four times in the first two verses, the writer questions how long. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Let's read uh, beginning in verse number one. The psalmist writes, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Four times he brings this expression, how long, and he asks several questions. This book can be divided basically, or this chapter can be divided, excuse me, into basically three sections. Verses 1 and 2 are the cry of the downtrodden, those that are oppressed by the wicked. Uh, And so there's a cry out to the Lord and a desperation. Uh, And then the second section is verses 3 and 4, and that deals with the prayer of the weary, those that are weary in this oppression. Uh, it's not something that came quickly and left quickly, but they've been under this oppression for a period of time, and they cry out to God in verses 3 and 4. And then verses 5 and 6 is the song of faith, the song of faith. And we're going to look at this as we see a transition in the attitude, if you will, or the spirit of the writer of this psalm. We see a transition from a place of helplessness and hopelessness And possibly, as we get to the middle of the psalm, even maybe a tinge of bitterness or resentment to a place of rejoicing and faith in God. And what a great psalm this is. In times of trials and troubles in our lives, it does us well sometimes to come to this book because the psalmist so many times deals with trials, and he's pretty transparent about how he feels, doesn't he? In the early part of most of these psalms, you hear his heart and how he feels that God is... Uh, forsaken him, how he doesn't see things there. As we get to verse number one, this cry comes from a, a deep anguish. There's a, there's a um, just a very intense desire that the psalmist has 
for God to bring some relief to him, some deliverance in time of distress, in time of uh, the enemy uh, oppressing him and going through some things. And you almost get a sense of, and I, and I would say almost, I think pretty clearly you can see that there's even a sense of some impatience there. Uh, it's almost like he's saying, how long, how long, how long, how long? Uh, he's just going after this idea of, Lord, how long are you going to allow this to continue in my life and not bring deliverance to me? And I don't know about you, but I've been in my life, and I would guess that most of us here today have been at a point where we could relate to that, couldn't we? We've been in a place where we feel like, wow, is God even around? Is He going to bring deliverance? And so he questions these things. And I was reading some other men that had commented on this passage in getting these notes together this week and studying it. And uh, Charles Spurgeon, who wrote a great, great series of things on the Psalms called The Treasury of David, uh, he wrote about this particular verse. He said, Oh, for grace that while we wait on God we may be kept from indulging in a murmuring spirit. Isn't that good? All, the, all for grace that we would, that while we wait on God, we may be kept from a murmuring spirit. And there are several questions that the psalmist asks here as he asks how long. The first one we find is, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? How long wilt thou forget me? This is a really kind of an almost foolish or insulting question. But the psalmist is trying to be real transparent here about how he feels. And I'll be real frank with you. I'm not proud of the moments of time in my life, but there have been times I've had some discussions with God. Lord, I don't understand this. And probably you have too at some point. And there's a foolishness to it, but I think it does us well to pour our hearts out to the Lord and for us to express that to Him, that our weakness, even though the Spirit may be willing, the flesh oftentimes is weak. And so he cries out, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? As if, as if the omniscience of God could ever forget anyone. And uh, how foolish it sounds sometimes when we, when we cry out that way. But uh, somebody asked this question, Can the heart of the father forget his beloved child? And the answer to that, of course, is no. He can't forget those things. And so the question that the psalmist asks here is not because, he's, because God has forgotten him but because the psalmist feels that God has forgotten him. I think it's very important to distinguish between those two statements because there are times we may feel that God has forsaken us, but that does not mean that God has forsaken us, that he has forgotten us. And so he asks us several questions here. The first one is, wilt thou forgive me? The second one is just a single word question, forever? <laughs> and this kind of adds insult to injury to the first question, and it's one thing to to uh, question if God has forgotten us as if he needs to be reminded of it. But then to imply that this would be a, a, an everlasting for, forgetfulness, that God will uh, forget us forever. And uh, the, the Bible is very clear about uh, how oftentimes God allows his children to go through trials. Sometimes he does it for our chastening, which is for our good. And sometimes he does it for our testing of our faith, which is also for our good. And so while the, 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 the trial of life that we go through is never a pleasant thing, it is something we should rejoice that God, has bringing, that God is bringing us through it because it is always for our good and it is always going to be for his glory. 
And so he asked this question, are you going to forget me forever? Uh, the Bible says that there's uh, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And there are times that the Bible speaks to the fact that we're not to be weary, uh, that we're to be uh, strong and very courageous and to go through these trials that God has given to us uh, with faith that is strengthened. And so he asks these two questions. Then he asks this question also in verse number one. He says, Wilt thou hide thy face from me? Wilt thou hide thy face from me? Now this one doesn't express necessarily God's forgetfulness, but just the fact that God... Uh, again, the psalmist feels like that God uh, is not paying as close attention to him. I remember years ago when I first had my son, Jonathan, and uh, he was just a toddler, probably 18 months, maybe a year old or so, and he'd sit on my lap sometimes, and there were times I'd be reading something or I'd be uh, watching a a program on the television or I'd be talking with uh, someone in the house, and he'd be right up against me, and he, he wanted my attention. And he'd be like, Dad. And I wouldn't look at him, but I would, I would hear him, and I would say, What, son? And Dad, what? And Dad. And two or three times he would do this. And I don't know how many times this happened when he was that age. All of a sudden, I would feel two little hands come up and grab my cheeks and turn my face so that I'm looking at him. And it wasn't that I wasn't aware of him. It was that he wanted all of my attention. And so when the psalmist asks this question in verse 1, it's not necessarily speaking that he feels that God has forgotten him, perhaps, although he's already expressed that part of it in verse 1. But what he's trying to say here is, Lord, I want all of your attention. And it's not that God hasn't given it to him, but the situation the psalmist has found himself in causes his heart to feel like God has turned his face from him. That God's attention was not all there. And I, 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 another fellow wrote this. He said, to the child of God, this hiding of the face is terrible. He will never be at ease until once more he has the Father's smile. And the truth of the matter is, uh, no matter what the trial that we go through on earth is, if we ever get to the place in our heart, in our spirit, where we feel like God is not there, where he's not, he's not involved with what we're going through, That's worse than the actual problem we're going through. To have a sense that God's presence is not there ought ought to be harder on us than the very trial itself. And it's interesting that the psalmist at this point in the psalm is not so much complaining about the trial as he is about the fact, I need your presence, Lord. Where is it? How long? How long till this deliverance comes? As we get to verse number 2, he asks again, how long? So I take counsel in my soul. And I want you to notice how deeply this thing was hurting him. He says, having sorrow in my heart daily. And the idea of, of this sorrow being such an overwhelming sense that God's presence and, and God's, uh, God's attention span, if you will, being focused on us, appears to us like it's not there. Now, again, let me just reiterate this. We understand that the Bible teaches us that not a single hair can fall from our head without God knowing about it. There's not a sparrow, little sparrow, that falls to the ground without God knowing it. So any perception of this, any time we cry out to God with this type of a prayer, you can rest assured it's not because He has changed. It's because there's been something in our heart that's not right. And how often 
we begin to mull over these trials of life, and our faith is not what it maybe should be, and the sorrow certainly is there, and we begin to mull over it day after day, we ponder it and ponder it and ponder it, we don't ever see the way of escape from it. We, we begin to cry out, how long, Lord? I, I need some deliverance. This is going on and on and on. I'm weary of this. But I, I would say this, that the more we ponder the trials of life without having faith that God will deliver us from them, it, it will tend to fester in our lives uh, a spirit of bitterness and even if we're not bitter at God, we speak bitter words about it. We begin to murmur like the Israelites did in the wilderness. After all that God had done for them in delivering them from Egypt, and yet all they could do was see the bad things of life. And Jeremiah chapter 17, I've used the passage many, many times, but it talks about the man who trusts in man, has his eyes set on his own strength, and how that he cannot see when the good cometh. He's always seeing the, the bad that happens. But then it says that the blessed man is the man that trusteth in the Lord. And the Bible says about that man that he cannot see when the heat cometh. The, the, the bad times of life, the dark times of life, the oppression, the, 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 the things that come into our lives that bring trouble and trial to us. I'd much rather be the blessed man, wouldn't you? I'd much rather when trials come to my life be the one that looks to the Lord and says, Lord, I don't really enjoy the trial but I know you got it well in hand, so I'm just going to go on with life and rejoice that you're going to take care of it. Oh, that we could have that kind of a grace in our spirit. But one that is continuing to ponder these things and to go over them and over them and over them four times, the psalmist speaks of this, uh, is one that can very easily, if not dealt with, turn into some bitterness in our hearts and in our spirits. And he talks about this sorrow being something that is an inner sorrow. It's in his heart. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And boy, this question kind of rubs salt in the wound to us, doesn't it? Because it's bad enough to have trials and circumstances of life that burden us, but when it's an enemy that not only is, is oppressing us, but according to the psalmist, he says this enemy is exalted over me. This is an enemy that takes pleasure in bringing that oppression to us, who, who laughs and mocks at our misery who enjoys the fact that he's put us under his oppression. Um, that kind of adds salt to the wound, doesn't it? It's bad enough to have to go through trials without having to have somebody pour salt in the wound as, as he does it to us. And so four times, this is the cry of the psalmist, this, the writer of this particular psalm. This is the way he feels at the onset of the psalm. Now, there's, there's four different times that he uses how long, and each of them deals with a specific uh, scene, if you will, a specific emphasis. The very first one that we see in verse number 1 deals with how, how things appeared to the writer of this psalm. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? Then the second one, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me, uh, is more of a cry of how it is. How it, there's one that is how it appears, and then there's one that how it is. How it seems to be, and then how it actually is. The third one that is found in verse number 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, is uh, how long that deals with how it has affected him. So not only has he seen the oppression this way, uh, not only does he recognize how the oppression really is, but then what has it caused him to feel like? And what has it caused him to take action on? And then lastly, 
uh, it's viewed as those that are expressed by the wicked and how long are they going to be exalted over him. And each of them deals with a specific area. Uh, oftentimes things appear worse than they are. I, my dad told me years ago, and I think he had, I think there's even Bible to back this up. There are some passages of Scripture, I think, that uh, speak of this. But he used to say the difference between a big problem and a little problem usually is 24 hours. Because how often in the, in the emotion, in the heat of the moment, we blow the, the problem so much bigger than it is. And or we try to fix it on our own. And when we get to the place where we can calm our spirit and just trust in God to meet the need, oftentimes that, that problem goes from something that's huge to just something that's very, very little. And uh, giving it some time for God to do His work and be patient. Again, we mentioned earlier, there seems to be a, a sense of impatience early on in this psalm. As we get to verse number 3, we now find the prayer. This is uh, the prayer that he's going to uh, ask the Lord for some things. And so in verse number 3, uh, I want you to notice that uh, he first of all recognizes that the source of the solution, the, the, the thing that's going to bring about the deliverance, is not something that he can conjure up, but he goes to the right source. He goes to the Lord. And the, 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 the sooner we can learn and recognize that the solution to those trials is in God, uh, if we can ever learn to, to uh, get to the place where we can recognize it er, early and go to Him early and not try to, tra- tra- to traverse that trial on our own, it would benefit us greatly. Somebody said uh, a while back, and I wish I could remember who it was I was reading, but they said that prayer, when it comes to us praying to God for these trials like this, prayer ought to be our steering wheel, not the spare tire. And oftentimes we wait till we get in an emergency situation. We wait till we've tried everything that we can. And then we finally come to God and say, Lord, I've done everything I can. Now I need your help. Wouldn't it be far better if we'd start off by praying, Lord, I need your help. I can't go through this trial on my own. It's too, too heavy. It's too great for me. I need your help in this. And so the psalmist, he relates a lot to the way you and I would live our lives, really. Uh, the Bible's not something that's way above what we are. It's, it's, it brings our heart to bear. We see, we see what manner of people we are because we see it in the heart of the psalmist here. And he says in verse number 3, he goes to the right place. He goes to the Lord. And he starts by saying this, consider and hear me. So he went from this place of, Lord, are you going to forget me? Uh, are you going to forget me forever? To the place of, Lord, I want you to consider and hear me. I want you to turn your face to me. Give me your attention. And, and it's not that, this, that the, the, uh, the Lord doesn't hear us or that he doesn't consider things. But again, the perception of the psalmist feels this way. And so he cries out to God. He says, consider and hear me, O Lord. Notice this, my God. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. This, this, this weeping of grief and bitterness of spirit that, uh, that he had. Uh, as, he, as he contemplated and mulled over the, the situation he was in, is completely erased. It's gone as his faith is expressed in the, in the statement, Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. There's one thing that is absolutely for certain to a child of God, and that is this. No matter what happens in life, you can lose everything you have, but you will never lose God. A songwriter wrote it years ago. 
I am his, and he is mine. The psalmist said later on in another psalm, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. Oh, that we would learn that this God of heaven is not just a God who uh, looks over the affairs of men, but he's a personal God. The God of heaven is your God. He's my God. He comes to my aid. I remember years ago, a group of teenagers in my youth group sang a song, and, and the, the gist of it was, He loves me as if I was His only child. And as they get to the, the chorus of it, it says, The amazing thing is, all of His children feel that way. We all feel like we're His only child because we get special treatment from God. He's very personal. He's involved in our lives. And the psalmist expresses his faith by saying, Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God, lighten mine eyes. And here he's asking, Lord, help me to have my, help my faith in the, in the uh, deliverance that you're going to bring. Help my faith to be more clearly seen. I, I want my eyes of faith to be opened up. I, I don't want to be burdened down and bogged down with the, the problems of these enemies that are uh, affecting me and oppressing me. I want, I want my eyes of faith to be bright and clear. I don't want it to be cloudy. I don't want it to have doubt in my life. And so he says, light mine eyes. And I don't want you to notice this phrase, lest I sleep the sleep of death. That's a pretty strong statement. Hold your place here for a moment. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to come right back to it, so keep a finger there in Psalm 13. But look with me in Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. Colossians chapter 3. The writer expresses here, and you'll find this mentioned a few times in Psalm 119. The psalmist does the same thing. He expresses the same uh, situation. But he is expressing here that without this this clearness of vision in in, in looking through eyes of faith and just seeing through the problem to the the one that can fix the problem, not having their eyes so much set on uh, the oppression as they are setting on the one who can deliver them from the oppression having a clear view, a clear vision of things. He expresses that without this clearness of faith, being able to see by faith, and without this absolute ability to depend on God's deliverance, that he would actually die from it. I don't know if he's speaking here necessarily so much of his physical death, although it could be that too. He could become so wearied and so burdened. And we've seen, we've all heard and know of people that have had such a broken heart that they've literally died from it. To be under such oppression that they've died from it. And look in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read four verses here, in verse number 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, boy, aren't we glad if we've trusted Christ as our Savior today. We used to be dead in our trespasses and sin, the Bible says, but now we're risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And I want you to notice verse number 4. When Christ, and what's the next phrase here? Who is our what? Who is our life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Can I tell you this? Everything that you are today, Everything that you ever will be from this point forward in your life, you owe it all to the glory of God. Every bit of it. 
in Him we move and have our being. He is our life. He's that which sustains us and strengthens us. And, and He says in verse number 3 of Psalm 13, He says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, light mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, Lord, if You have forgotten me, if You have forsaken me, in, if You continue to hide Your face from me, then Lord, I'm not going to make it. Oh, that we could have the kind of faith of that kind of dependence upon God. Lord, if I don't have You, I don't have enough to sustain myself. I can't even live. As he gets to verse 4, he says, Lest my enemies say that I have prevailed against Him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Can I say this about verse number 4? It is not God's desire for our enemy, our adversary, which ultimately is Satan. It may be displayed in other people in our lives. But ultimately is Satan. He's trying to destroy us. It's never God's will for the adversary, our enemy, to overcome us. He sometimes will allow, as he did in the life of Job, Satan to afflict us physically or in life to test or try our faith. But it's never his desire for Satan to ever overcome us. Paul wrote this, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm thankful that we have a God that lives inside of us, that dwells in our hearts, that is greater than Satan will ever be. That will, with every temptation, according to what Scripture says, make a way of escape, that we may be able to bear it. The psalmist says in verse number 4, Lest my enemies say I prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I move. It is never God's desire for us to be overcome by our adversary. As we get on to verse number 5, we go to the last section of the psalm. <clears throat> We've seen the cry of the one that was oppressed. We've seen uh, the prayer of the, the one that was weary in that oppression. And now we're going to come to the song of faith. It's, it's like there's been a 180 degree turnaround in the attitude, in the spirit of this writer, isn't there? He goes from a place of agonizing in his oppression to the place of rejoicing. I love what he says here in verse 5. He says, but I have, in the past, he says, I have trusted in thy mercy. And then he says this, my heart, what's the next word here? Shall, do we see it there in verse 5? But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Can I tell you this? Future faith is often strengthened by past experiences of God. It helps us to be reminded of those things. And at the early part of the psalm, we see the psalmist reflecting on the oppression. How long? How long? How long? How long? And then at the end of it, we find that he says, You know what? I have trusted in your mercy. And because I've trusted your mercy, and I've seen that faithfulness in the past, he says, I shall rejoice in thy salvation. Notice this. God's deliverance to the writer of this psalm has not yet happened at the writing of this verse. And yet, he says, I shall rejoice in thy salvation. Isn't it amazing what clear vision with eyes of faith will do to our hearts and our spirits? As far as the writer of this psalm was concerned, 
The deliverance that God was going to bring him from the oppression that he was under was as certain as though it had already been done. And he begins to rejoice already. He begins to thank the Lord already for this. And he says in verse number 6, I will sing unto the Lord. And here we find this same thing. I will sing unto the Lord. Because he, here's the word, hath. That's past tense. I will sing unto the Lord. Because he hath dealt, I love this word, bountifully with me. Oftentimes through the Psalms you will find the psalmist bring this idea to bear. He doesn't ask for the Lord to deal with him on his merit. The psalmist, great man of God, a man referred to as a man after God's own heart. A man that God loves so much that he told him, he said, your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Your line, your seed is going to be the seed where the Messiah is going to come through. He gives David an awful lot of things because he loved David with all of his heart. And David loved him with all of his heart. And yet David, in all of the goodness that maybe he had been as a younger man, not one time did David ever ask the Lord to deal with him because of his merit. He didn't say, Lord, uh, deal deal good with me because I've done good. I've done this, 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 and this, and so Lord, I think you need to do this for me. No, no, no. The psalmist learned a lesson early on in life, apparently. Because over and over and over in the Psalms, you'll find that he asks the Lord to deal bountifully with him. And what he means by that is simply this. Lord, I want you to deal with me from your bounty. Your bounty in mercy. Your bounty in grace. Even if it comes to material things, Lord, I want you to deal with me not by what I think I might deserve, but what your goodness and your mercy is willing to give me. I'll tell you this. Allowing God's bounty to be the way that He deals with us is far greater than us coming to Him and saying, Lord, You owe me this. And he makes the same idea here in verse 6. He says, I will sing unto the Lord. I may be going through oppression and trial. And Lord, I know when I sat down and wrote this psalm, I can almost hear him think this in his mind. I know I was complaining. I was murmuring. But as I've thought more on it, as I've prayed a prayer of faith to you for deliverance, It has turned my whole spirit around. And isn't it amazing how God does that to us? How often we have been in some of the deepest, darkest points of our life. We've come to Him in prayer. And before we ever leave the prayer closet, the heart is strengthened. The heart rejoices. Why? Because eyes of faith that can see clearly brings joy to the heart. Not because the deliverance has already happened, but because we're certain of it. We know that no matter what trial comes our way, the Father will care for His children.
Somebody wrote this. It is worthy to be observed that the joy is all the greater because of previous sorrow. As calm is all the more delightful in recollection of the preceding tempest. When we reflect back on the, on the battles, the trials, the storms of life that God has brought us through, it makes the joy that much more sweeter. It causes us to rejoice even that much more. We begin to think of the fact that the Lord is my defender. He's my high tower. He's the defender of the righteous. And no matter what the enemy tries, he cannot drive the heart of faith from me. No matter what circumstances may come my way, that faith can still be made strong. Somebody wrote it this way. They said, as a shipwrecked sailor clings to the mast in a storm, so should God's children cling to our faith in His mercy. What a great, great song. The joy bells of the heart are now ringing rather than the sorrow that we saw at the very beginning. He's got a song in his heart. It's springing up so much in him that it pours out of his lips. And by the way, I think that ought to be I was talking to somebody this week about this, in fact. That ought, to be the, that ought to be the case of every Christian. The psalmist made the comment, I think it was in Psalm 23. He said, My cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our faith, the vision of our faith, our eyes being able to see by faith, the deliverance of God, His watch care over us, the certainty of His love for us, no matter what the trying circumstances of life are. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it would be such that it would cause our hearts to fill and overflow with praise to Him, with a song in the heart, as we think, Lord, I'm so thankful, not only for what You've done in the past, but I will sing praises to You because I know that You're going to be faithful in the future also. I hope that will help you a little bit as you go through maybe some trials in life. I love the Psalms. I love the way the psalmist really just pours his heart out. I can read these Psalms so many times and I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. I begin to see some of the very things that he deals with and some of the same attitudes, some of the same views of things. And how oftentimes as he comes full circle and brings that heart of joy to bear, it seems to cheer my heart, strengthen my faith, and cause my vision to clear. And I hope that will help you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed, and we'll have our next service here in about 20 minutes. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for Your Word. Lord, a simple psalm, just six verses, and yet there's so much truth in it, so many things that we can relate to and that we can understand.